Hey, Five Oaks family. I'm so sorry I can't be there with you this weekend. Uh, I've got a, um, I got COVID, and so that's why I'm not there, and that's why I'm shooting my video here at home. Yeah, I'm hoping this isn't going to like be some kind of trigger for those of you who absolutely look back at the time when we had to do sermons like this on a regular basis as, uh, as a horrible experience. Uh, but I have a very mild case, uh, a little bit of coughing. Hopefully, I won't be coughing during this. A uh, little bit of congestion. That's about it. And by the end of the day, maybe a little less energy than I would normally have. Uh, so we are in our fifth week of our series on Second Peter. It's a summer series. It's taking us all the way through Labor Day. And uh, although we're going to, at the end of uh, Labor Day weekend, we're going to do a special sermon on Jude, which is a book that's very closely aligned with Second Peter. And so uh, that's what we're doing over the summer. We're in our fifth week of the series. We're looking at chapter 1, verses 16 through 22, but we're not, we're not going to be looking at all those verses in detail. We're going to focus ourselves on verses 16 through 18. And I can't say for sure, but I think at the end of the month, uh, we're going to have a special weekend, a, a baptism weekend. And I think I'm going to bring back verses, uh, what, uh, 19 through 22 at that point. I'm not sure yet, but that's kind of my plan right now. So we're focusing on verses 18 through uh, uh, 16 through 18, but we will look at verses uh, 19 through 22 in our reading so that you can hear the whole thing in context. So before we read, I want to set a few things up uh, so that when you first hear this passage read, it makes a little bit more more sense to you. And uh, I want to do that, first of all, by imagining, help, uh, or you join me in imagining that you've been invited to a party. And you get yourself ready and you show up at the party and the host of the party looks at you and then kind of looks you up and down and says these dreaded words. Uh, what's the occasion? <laughs> well, at that point, you know that you are... Uh, greatly overdressed, and you know you're going to be uncomfortable all night and you're going to stick out like a sore thumb. For some people, not a big deal. I would be mortified by a situation like that, especially if I was way, way overdressed. But that question, what's the occasion, is a really important question uh, when it comes to Bible study, especially when you're reading uh, things like Second Peter, which is an epistle, it's a letter. A uh, letter written to a congregation. Uh, prophetic books can be this way as well. And there are other books in the Bible as well where the occasion is really important to ask that question. What is the occasion for this letter is really important. At least that's how scholars talk about it. They talk it about talk about the occasional nature of, of m much of Scripture. And so, and the reason is, is because something like Second Peter, it's not an essay. It's not just that Peter decided to sit down and, and write a, you know, a, a treatise on some particular subject. It's, it's not a sermon per se. It has sermonic elements. We saw that a couple of weeks ago, but, but not, it's, it's not a sermon. The, the document is literally a letter that Peter has written to several people. And it's occasion, when you talk about the occasion, what it means is 
what is happening when this letter is written, what is happening in the life of the writer and what's happening in the life of the uh, recipients of the letter? That's what it means by uh, this being an occasional document and asking what is the occasion. So Peter, first of all, he has, uh, there are things going on in his life. We learned that last week as we looked at Peter talking about the fact that he believes uh, that Jesus has communicated to him, or Jesus has communicated to him, that he is not long for this world, that his end is coming soon. So there is a sense, an extra sense of urgency in what Peter is saying. He wants them to remember certain things, and he even wants them to remember what he's writing beyond his life after he's gone. He wants them to remember the things that he's talking about. So that's part of the occasion. But there's another element to the occasion, and that is what's happening in the lives uh, of these congregations that Peter is writing to. And so that's also a very, very important question. Um, and we know that there are, as you read the letter, we know that there are false teachers who are influencing or may influence the congregation. And so really, just about everything that Peter writes in this letter is fueled by and impacted by what's happening in his life, the occasion of his life and the occasion of uh, the situation of what's happening in that church. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that I want to give a little bit more background to what's to what Peter talks about in this passage so that you get more out of it just even in the initial reading in a few moments when we read through the whole passage as you follow along in it. So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles in the seat rack in front of you if you're watching this uh, in person. And uh, the um, there's Bibles in the seat rack and it's on page 1,000. 225, 1,225 in those Bibles. So uh, I want to clarify a few things uh, before we listen to the whole passage read and we follow along in the passage being read. Uh, but one has to do with what he's talking about, what the subject matter is that, that he has here. And, and we, we find out what it is in verse 16, but it could be a little bit confusing. So I want you to look at verse 16, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, where it said, For we, and he's, he's talking about himself and other apostles, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. All right, so, so what, is he, what is he talking about here? Well, that word coming could have, could give you the impression that what he's talking about is that he and the other apostles came and told the churches about the coming of Christ, you know, the, the, the coming, the first coming of Christ. But it's very unlikely that's what he's talking about. It's almost completely impossible that that's what he's talking about. And there's several reasons for that. Uh, one is that the word coming that he uses there is a word that uh, takes on very quickly a kind of a technical meaning. It's a word that's kind of um, endued with a particular meaning, 
uh, more than just what the word is because of the way that it's used by the early church. And you find this in the writings of the New Testament. That word usually is used to refer not to the first coming of Christ, but to the second coming of Christ. Uh, when then that word is combined with, it says, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, uh, it takes on even more of a sense that he is talking here about what he and other apostles taught them about the second coming of Christ. And then, of course, you have what he says later in the letter, in chapter 3, where he talks about scoffers who come and say, when is this Jesus coming back? He's not coming back. Everything goes on just like normal. And you got ding, ding, ding. You get the sense that, oh, okay, that's what he's addressing here. The occasion of the letter, what's going on in the recipient's life. He's trying to uh, solidify right here very early on before he even takes on that subject again later in chapter three. He's already laying down these realities that the word that um, Jesus is coming back in spite of the fact that those of you in the recipients of this letter are hearing from some people that Jesus isn't coming back. And so he wants to get that out right away. But here's something else that's gonna help you understand this passage as we read it in just a few moments. It's what he says at the very back, uh, at the very end of, chap of verse 16, when he says in the last phrase, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, so because of that reference and what he says in the next couple of verses, what he's talking about here is a story that's contained in uh, fully in three of the Gospels, referenced in one of the Gospels, but fully told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, a story that is typically called the Transfiguration. And so um, it's, it's something that he is presenting as evidence that Jesus is coming back. Okay, so he says, I, I, I want to, uh, uh, you to understand that we didn't make this stuff up. Jesus is coming back. In fact, we were eyewitnesses of the transfiguration is what he's saying. And you may wonder, why does he refer to the transfiguration? Uh, it's, a, it's only a little bit puzzling. In a few moments, we're going to talk about it. And I really... I really believe and I hope that you come away from uh, today's sermon uh, really understanding you know, the transfiguration and some of the depths of its dimensions and that you can um, get more out of it and really, really understand how it should impact our lives. All right, so we're going to read the transfiguration. For some of you, it's going to be an introduction because you're not familiar with the Bible. For others of you, it's going to be kind of a review, a reminder of what it is. So uh, we're turning to Luke chapter 9, so turn back. In the Bibles, it's the third book in the New Testament, Luke chapter 9, and uh, it's Jesus talking privately to his disciples, and he says to them, beginning in verse 26, Luke chapter 9, verse 26, he says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some of you standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. About eight days after this, Jesus, um, 
after Jesus said this, Jesus took Peter, John, and James with him and went up into the mountain to pray. And he was praying. as he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as flashing lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, uh, as the men were leaving um, Jesus, Peter said to him, "Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters: one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah." And uh, Luke puts in this little parenthetical statement: "He, meaning Peter." did not know what he was saying. All right, so he gives a little apology uh, for Peter's silliness of saying this. It makes somewhat sense in that culture to do that, but really in a situation like that, uh, he just should have shut up. And that's pretty much what God says to him because it says, while he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, this is my son, whom I have chosen, listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. All right, so Peter is going to reference that in our passage. And you can tell that Peter knows uh, that the recipients know what he's talking about. He just gives a few details about it, but just enough that you can tell, oh yeah, if this happened in his life, there's no doubt this is what he's referring to. And so we, um, you know, when, when we read this, now you know, and if you didn't know, and they know, and so we are going to listen to one of our five oakers, read the scripture for today and follow along beginning in, um, First Peter, Second Peter, chapter one, beginning in verse sixteen. Second Peter, chapter one, verse sixteen to verse twenty-one. For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of His Majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father. And the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son, whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Right, so in order to be able to understand why it would be that Peter would reference the transfiguration 
when he's trying to make a point that Jesus is returning, why he's going to uh, kind of, you know, go into that story as evidence that Jesus is going to return. I want to take you back just for a moment to 1994. Hopefully this will help you understand what Peter is doing, what the gospel writers uh, were doing. <clears throat> All right, let's try this. This is the voiceover for a comedian <clears throat> movie trailer. Take one. In a world where laughter was king. Uh, no in a world, Jack. What do you mean, no in a world? It's not that kind of movie. Oh? Okay. In a land that... No in a land either. In a time... No, I don't think so. In a land before time. It's about a comedian, Jack. One man. No. When your life is no longer your own. What, what does that mean? When everything you know is wrong. That's wrong. In an outpost. No. On the edge of space. There's no space. A girl. No. Two girls. No. Now. No. More than ever. Uh, what does that have to do with the transfiguration, you may be wondering? Well, because the way that the transfiguration is presented in the Gospels, it functions as a trailer or a preview of the second coming. It's actually how the Gospels portray uh, the transfiguration, especially the Gospel of Luke, because of just a little phrase that he adds to connect the transfiguration with everything that he adds uh, on the end of that. So back to Luke chapter 9, and you don't need to turn to it. I'll, um, I'll read it, but you can if you want to. Back to Luke chapter 9. Maybe you're still there. I am. Um, so back in Luke chapter 9, uh, Jesus has been telling the disciples that he is uh, going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die. He's going to suffer. He's going to die and he's going to rise again. And it's, uh, I think in Luke, uh, I'm pretty sure chapter 9 is the first time that he tells this to the disciples. And they, of course, we learn through the Gospels, they have no idea what it is that he's talking about. But towards the end there, he says... These words that I read a few minutes ago, he says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. Now, there is no doubt that when he's talking there, he's talking about final judgment. He's talking about the return, his return, the return of Christ. No doubt about it. Now, the question is, is he still talking about that in verse 27? Because then he says, Truly, I tell you, some of you will, uh, who are standing here will not taste death before you see the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus brings the kingdom of God and he teaches that the kingdom of God is present in him. So why does he say only some of you standing here are going to experience it, experience that? So it's very hard to imagine that what Peter, that what Jesus is talking about here is that he's talking about, um, you know, that uh, the, the coming of the kingdom in him and in his ministry. Uh, but, but then Luke adds this to tie what he says next to that. He says, about eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter. Okay, so he says, some of you are going to see the kingdom of God. Right before that, he talks about uh, coming in his glory and there's going to be a judgment and the angels are going to come and all of that. And he says, about eight days after Jesus said this about some seeing it, he took 
some with him. He took Peter, James, and John, three of the disciples. He took them with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, um, the other Gospels help kind of fill in some of the details as well. Because Luke, when he says in verse 27, where I asked the question, is he still talking about the coming of the coming, you know, the coming of the kingdom uh, in the future, when it comes in its fullness, uh, he says, he describes, they will see, some of you will see the kingdom of God. And, and so, you know, with what he just said, if those are connected, no doubt he's talking about the second coming, but maybe, maybe they're not connected. But Matthew and Mark make certain that we understand they fill it in a little bit more. They give us more of what Jesus said and what his intention was. And Matthew says, um, some of you are going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Okay, so coming, only some of you are going to see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That gets us closer to, yes, he's still talking about the second coming. And then Mark says, some of you will not taste death before you see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Again, now he's now it's it's fuller. It's the coming with power. That, that doesn't describe the first coming of Jesus. Was there power? Yes. But you don't describe the coming of Jesus as the coming with power. It's it's coming in humility and it's coming in I mean, he comes and he lives a peasant's life. And uh, there's no doubt that this is not a um, a gigantic power display, and really the power displays are few and far between. Um, then, then Luke, of course, makes that explicit connection about after this. So Peter, James, and John, according to the Gospels, are seeing the kingdom of God come with power. They're seeing the second coming. How's that? Well, most scholars say, well, the only explanation is they're getting a preview of it. And when you see how it describes just the indescribable Jesus brightness uh, being, um, I can't remember if it's Luke. Yeah, Luke says, as bright as a flash of lightning. The other gospel writers say similar things. They're trying to capture this like glorious, glorious scene that, that is happening. What they're seeing is a preview of what it's going to be like to see Jesus come in his second coming, his radiance, his majesty. And only some of the disciples saw this because Peter, only Peter, James, and John. Jesus only took Peter, James, and John with him. So when Peter wants to refute the false teachers who are saying that Jesus isn't coming back, he appeals to what he saw and what James saw and what John saw in their own eyes. So turn back to 2 Peter with their own eyes. Uh, turn back to 2 Peter and chapter 1, and let's read it again with that in mind. And we'll read verses 16 through 18, where it says, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father, when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him 
on the sacred mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration. All right. So uh, Peter is offering this as evidence, uh, eyewitness evidence that Jesus is returning, which is, you, you know, you might scratch your head a little bit and go, well, why didn't Peter appeal to something that all the disciples experienced? For example, Peter could have said, uh, uh, we saw the risen Christ, and that was amazing. And the risen Christ spent weeks after he rose teaching us. Uh, and he taught us about the kingdom. And one of the things that he taught us was he taught us about his return. And that would have all been true. That is exactly what the book of Acts tells us Jesus did after uh, his resurrection. He taught them and he taught them about the kingdom and about all those things. So um, he could have said that. He could have appealed to the resurrection. Instead, he says, we've seen with our own eyes the return of Jesus. We've seen or heard with our own ears God affirming that Jesus is who he said uh, he is. That's what he appeals to. So... My question is this. If we're going to drive this home to our own lives, my question is this. What about the rest of us chumps? What, what about the people who get this letter? What about the other disciples who didn't get to see the coming of Jesus? What about all of us who have not seen Jesus' first coming, much less his second coming? Well, here's the thing. We have the story told in the Gospels. Jesus, Peter refers to the story in the Gospel as well. Uh, because we're being invited. We're being invited to enter into the story. We're being invited to reflect and experience this life-defining wonder, uh, this life-defining, just awe-inspiring experience that Peter had. So the story, as Peter recalls it, as the Gospels write it, it's meant to have that effect on us. Um, the transfiguration was a life-defining moment for Jesus, for Peter. And it can be for us also a life-defining moment that lifts up our wonder and lifts up our awe. So as I reflected on this, uh, one of the things that came to my mind as I was preparing my sermon was I started thinking about The Chosen and a joke that I always say with regard to The, to the Chosen. So The Chosen is a, a multi-season depiction of Jesus' ministry. Uh, a lot of you have seen it. It's uh, really, really well done. I love, I absolutely love The Chosen. But what I often do to kind of throw people off, they'll be talking about it and they'll be saying, oh, it's fantastic, you've got to see it. They'll be telling, so I just did this, I think, last week um, with the worship team in back in the back room. And, uh, and I'll say, well, I only have one problem with the show and everybody looks at me and like oh no he's gonna ruin it for me and i say my my problem with the show is that i'm afraid i, I like the guy who plays jesus so much i find him so compelling that i'm afraid that when i meet the real jesus i'm going to be disappointed and then everybody realizes i'm joking and i am joking i i, I know better i really do know better but there is there is this little sliver of, 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 
of truth. Like I actually do kind of a little bit feel that way because I do find the Jesus character so, so compelling. And the way they portray him in that show, I think is so, so well done. Um, but as I was reading this passage and, you know, kind of just diving into it and thinking about it and reflecting and meditating on it, uh, it, it just put any concern of that, which I don't have, but maybe I do have a little bit. It just put any concern of that to rest. Because the reality is when we see Jesus, when we see him face to face, it's going to be so much greater than anything we can imagine. I don't think we will think about the chosen. I don't think I will think about the chosen. I don't think I will kind of do any kind of comparisons in my mind because it is going to be so incredible. It is going to be so big. There will be no disappointment. So you and I, though, the rest of us chumps, right? We weren't there. Only Peter, James, and John beheld his majesty, as he says, on that sacred mountain. But the Bible calls us to worship God in all his majesty and all of his glory. So how do we do that? How, we, how do we grow in a sense of the glory and majesty uh, of God? Well, turn in your Bibles, like to approximately the middle of your Bible, uh, to Psalm 145. And so you kind of see it's kind of right in the middle of the Bible, the book of Psalms is. And it's one of the last, uh, one of the last five Psalms, so Psalm 145. And uh, we're going to look at verses uh, 3 through verse 7 because this teaches us how we can grow in wonder and how it is that we can really get more of a sense of the majesty of God, the majesty of Christ, the glory of God, the glory of Christ, all of that. So look at beginning in verse 3 where it says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise is greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. And I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works. And I will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. Okay, so how do we grow in a sense of wonder at God's glory and his majesty and the majesty of Jesus. How do we do this? Well, one of the ways, one of the primary ways that we do this is right there in verse four, where it says, one generation commends your works to another. One generation speaking to another generation. It's a, it's a speaking of, of God's glory back and forth. And then how does how does one generation speak of God's greatness? Uh, well, just look at some of the key words. They tell, tell of his mighty works. They speak of his glorious splendor. Verse six, they tell of the power. Uh, I will proclaim. They celebrate. All right, so that's, that's part of how this is, how one generation commends to another, by celebrating. And they joyfully sing, all right? They joyfully sing to one another. Uh, so what's being described here? 
worship, corporate worship. The people of God gathering together for worship, one generation singing and speaking and proclaiming and celebrating the wondrous works of God to another, one generation to another. So in Paul's letter um, to Ephesus, uh, one of the things that Paul says in that letter is you need to, um, to speak psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. All right. So when he says speak, he's talking about, well, he's talking about singing as well. So he's talking about uh, verbal communication. And he says, you need to do these things, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. And so when we gather for worship, we are not just singing oftentimes to God and speaking to God in prayer, but everything we're doing is also commending God to one another. So when I am speaking to God about his greatness in a song, for example, uh, I am uh, quite uh, literally commending God to the other people who are hearing me sing or speak of God's words. So I'm not going to be there this weekend. I'll, I will be uh, participating online. But uh, I looked ahead at planning center online, which we use. And I wanted to see what's happened in the service so far before you hear this sermon. And so uh, one of the things that's happened is that you have sung How Great Thou Art. Now that's a song that is written to be, uh, the, 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 the way that it's said is you're singing to God. How great thou art. You're singing uh, directly to God. But while you're singing to God, you're commending God and his greatness to one another. And then you've heard scripture and you have proclaimed scripture to one another. So this is from Psalm 8. You proclaimed this to one another. O Lord my God, how great you are. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings, that you care for them? You proclaim that to one another. You heard this uh, from Psalm 104 and Jeremiah 10. You heard, no one is like you, O Lord. You are great, and, and your name is mighty in power. Let all that I am praise the Lord. O, o Lord my God, how great you are. Okay, when... When someone was proclaiming that to you, it was a proclaiming and commending God to you. It was a doing it to one another. Now, that, this makes me wish all the more that I could be with you this weekend. Um, I will be also commending. I'm just not going to have a whole lot of people listening as I'm commending. It's, it's one of the, the things that I'm so thankful that we can do this online. I'm so thankful that we can have our services online. But it doesn't match when you're face-to-face and your words, your actions, your praise, whether it be you lifting your hands or bowing your head in prayer, is commending God to one another. Your engagement in worship commends. It's like your generation commending God to another generation. Your participation, your engagement does that. When you are disengaged, you're not doing what the scriptures tell us to do 
when we worship one another. And there's personal element, even in corporate worship or in individual worship, because David does also speak here about personally meditating on your, he says, uh, meditate on your wonderful works. I meditate on your wonderful works. This is a Psalm of David, that's why I say David. Um, but it, meditate on your wonderful works. And so there, there needs to be, God calls us to be personally engaged in worship, not just for ourselves. Maybe I can be personally engaged, just kind of closing my eyes through the whole thing and not moving and being very stoic. But when I do that, I suppose maybe if I have my head bowed, but if I'm just looking like this, I am not commending God to one another. I just want to encourage you to commend God's greatness uh, to, to one another. So uh, one of the other things that I'm going to miss uh, from not being with you is to be able to participate in proclaiming the Lord's death. And you may be wondering, wh when are we going to proclaim the Lord's death or how am I going to do that? Because you are going to proclaim the Lord's death. Most of you are going to proclaim the Lord's death. Well, uh, think about what, what uh, Paul wrote when he wrote about the Lord's Supper and celebrating the Lord's Supper together, the community of believers in Corinth. And he writes this, he says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, I want to invite you to take out the communion elements. Get ready with the bread. Get ready with the cup. And listen to what he says in verse 26. He says, for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I invite you now to eat the bread and drink the cup together. One generation commending God's work or his works to one another.